Maybe you're someone who designs and builds technology for education. And like me, at some point you've wondered, in a learning website, it can apply to other software too. Is it better to keep the learner on my site, trying somehow to blind them from the distractions of other tabs? Or do I let them loose into the wilds of the internet? Or maybe you're a teacher, and like most, are increasingly being asked to also be a designer of such spaces, and aren't sure what the benefits of all those open tabs are in your student's browser. That's very fair. I've been tempted from time to time to think that we need to design learning environments like the one my kid is used to in his gaming life. Everything right there within a dashboard's reach. Pause game, quick narrative download, or a cutscene, and back to the action. The doing of the thing. I still think there's something to that. But I also am learning a lot from this guy and his colleagues. I'm Joel Breakstone. I am the director of the Stanford History Education Group. We're a research and development team based at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. Here's the context that will help you jump into this conversation. Quote, in the largest investigation of its kind, we administered an assessment to 3,446 high school students Equipped with a live internet connection, students responded to six constructed response tasks. Students struggled on all of them. Asked to investigate a site claiming to disseminate factual reports. On climate science, 96% never learned about the organization's ties to the fossil fuel industry. Two-thirds were unable to distinguish news stories from ads on a popular website's homepage. Over half believed that an anonymously posted Facebook video shot in Russia provided strong evidence of U.S. voter fraud, unquote. If I can be so bold, I'm going to offer a TLDR to those who, for whatever reason, don't have the stamina for the full study. In quotations on my notepad, I captured something Joel said. In order to understand information, you have to leave it. I'm paraphrasing somewhat. Now, back to those open tabs in your student's laptop. Is this madness or literacy we've been missing? Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joel Breakstone. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I've been really, really excited to talk to you. Um, I'm, I've been learning a lot about your work. And, um, man, I'm glad you're doing it. And I know... Um, as somebody who's been involved on a couple of fronts with research for a long time, um, it can be, uh, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but, um, man, I can certainly understand that it can be a slog occasionally to get things funded and, uh, be doing the work you want to be doing. And, um, and as I've been reading some of your stuff and, and, uh, stalking you, um, I feel really, really grateful that there are researchers doing this work. So, um, and starting the center and all of the stuff that you're doing is, well, it's great to have you. And I really appreciate you being here. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It's really generous of you. I'm kind of starting the new year with the show with a series of conversations that um, somewhat coincidentally, honestly, are kind of orbiting the topic of literacies um, for the digital age. And so when I came upon your most recent articles that you obviously are are leading with a 
co-authors who I will most definitely link to in the show notes and make sure that everybody is credited as, as I'm sure you are um, happy to be sort of uh, the, the tip of the spear for a big team that's really thinking about this stuff. But um, I saw your stuff originally in AERA's journal. I know that that was a republication from educational researcher. Um, I have so many questions for you because I find the work uh, fascinating in so many ways. And I think that folks who listen to this show, I hope will agree, are going to take a lot away from this conversation that gets to the heart of some of the issues that I think a lot of parents and educators, researchers know instinctively is there, but have a hard time kind of drilling down to the specific literacies on. And I think that's why the center and your work are so important is because we're talking about very specific um, ways of thinking about information in the digital age. And so I want to flash back for a second and ask my first question about, uh, you know, a decade ago, maybe even two decades ago, everybody thinking, and I still hear this today, that children of the internet are going to just have these literacies baked in and they don't need teaching. Um, So my first question is, how'd that pan out from your point of view? Yeah, it's been deeply problematic, and it is a belief that is very, very deeply ingrained, uh, this belief that because young people have grown up with digital devices, that they're going to be skilled at understanding the information that those devices provide has proven to be really off base uh, and often has led us to overestimate what students can do and as a result not prepare them with the tools they need to successfully navigate online. Our research unfortunately has shown over and over again that young people struggle to perform even the most basic evaluations of digital content that they come across on the internet. So this is a field of research that's really young. What are, I'm always interested in the work that new innovative research is built on because this is not a, you know, the internet is no longer new, maybe um, relative to some other things it's new, but, um, but I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to um, when you were starting to learn about this space and doing a dissertation and, and thinking about these things, Um, I'm sure you came across some of the literature that you built and maybe are even cited in uh, these most recent couple of papers that you've published. What is this work built on and how are you sort of trying to take the next step in understanding questions that have been around for a little while? So we've been engaged in this work since 2014, and as the name of our organization suggests, we've been long interested in history and how students learn history. Um, And we've developed curriculum materials focused on helping students to build disciplinary skills, how to to engage with primary documents in ways that are similar to how historians do. Um, But in 2014, we shifted our attention and uh, began to investigate how we might evaluate students' ability to make sense of the kind of information that streams across their digital devices. And we were approached by 
a foundation, the McCormick Foundation, based in Chicago. And they had been doing a lot of work uh, around news literacy and and also about civic education uh, and, and saw some ways in which these things overlap, that in order to be civically engaged, you need to be able to find good information online. And they saw that we had developed a whole uh, range of short history assessments um, that asked students to uh, evaluate real historical documents in just five or 10 minutes. And they wondered whether or not we could do something similar to uh, get a sense of whether or not uh, approaches to news literacy were really helping. Uh, do these uh, programs that uh, seek to help students be better at finding trustworthy information online actually work? And they wanted us to try to create some of those assessments. And so we set out to do exactly that. We designed materials that would ask students to evaluate real sources. Um, and we wanted to know, though, what does expertise look like? So in order to design these assessments, we wanted to know uh, the kinds of skills that people were really good at evaluating online information used. And so my colleague Sam Weinberg and Sarah McGrew uh, led a study where they, uh, they compared how three groups of people evaluated real online sources. And those groups were historians, folks uh, who spend all day examining uh, sources, and freshmen at Stanford University, young people who are uh, online all the time and in many cases will go on to work and found tech companies. And then finally, fact checkers, uh, folks from the most prestigious news outlets in the United States. And uh, we asked those uh, three groups of people to uh, to think out loud as they looked at unfamiliar sources online. And there were some really striking differences. The fact checkers did way better than either the historians or the Stanford students. The Stanford students and historians actually struggled quite a bit. Um, they often were taken in by sources that look credible, but were actually trying to hide their real intentions. Uh, in contrast, the fact checkers came to much better conclusions. How'd they do that? By almost immediately leaving an unfamiliar website. So it, when they came across minimumwage.com, which was one of the sources that we asked them to look at, they didn't spend time reading the about page that says it's a project of the Employment Policies Institute that is a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization. Instead, they turned to Google and searched for the Employment Policies Institute, and they quickly came across a whole host of information showing that it's a project of a PR firm run uh, out of uh, Washington, D.C. that works for the food and beverage industry and has a vested interest in employment issues and uh, keeping the minimum wage low. And so uh, we saw this move of leaving the website as crucial that this, uh, this approach was really different than the careful reading that the Stanford students and the historians engage with. And so we refer to that as vertical reading, what the, the, the historians and the students did. They just stayed on that website. In contrast, when the fact checkers opened up those new tabs and read across multiple sources, they were reading laterally. And by doing that, they got much better information. And so we set out to try to create short assessments that would evaluate how students did at using those kinds of skills. Um, what is this, uh, is this similar uh, across the country to, to what we saw with the historians and the, uh, the Stanford students uh, hold true uh, with, with larger groups of people? And unfortunately, we saw some uh, clear patterns that students from middle school through college had a really hard time at evaluating online sources because they just stayed on these sources and in many cases accepted them at face value. Mm. So 
going back to your experience a little bit, um, you were a history teacher. That's right. And when you were a history teacher, did were there experiences you had as an educator that triggered some of your thinking about, wow, there's an issue here um, that needs needs research and love? Um, did you have experiences that sort of motivated you to take some of the steps later on that you did? Yeah, without a doubt. I think, you know, one thing is you'd often have students coming in and saying, you know, uh, look what I found on online. It, it must be true um, that, you know, the the uh, the willingness of of young people and, you know, as as recent events have shown people in general to accept information they find online at face value uh, certainly influenced uh, in my thinking about this. And the reality that uh, as a teacher, I didn't have a lot of uh, experience or training about how to help students do better. None of us were equipped to do this. And our work is not supposed to be an attack on young people or those historians or students at Stanford. None of us uh, were, uh, were equipped to deal with the current digital landscape. What we need to do is make sure that we're now preparing students with tools that actually work. And, and that's one of the challenges that we see is there are a lot of problematic approaches to teaching digital literacy. Uh, if you look online for curricular tools, you'll find lots of things that are based around checklists, things like the crap test, um, which appears on thousands of websites that where you're supposed to answer upwards of 30 questions about an unfamiliar source, looking at things like the currency, the relevance, the authority, the appearance, and the purpose of the source. And individually, some of those questions can be really helpful. But on the whole, it's it's a uh, an antiquated approach, right? That you're not going to ask students to spend that much time digging deeply, especially since most of the questions direct students to look at the source itself rather than leaving it, which gives us much better answers. Um, so we need to make sure that, that we're not leading students astray with the kinds of instruction that we provide. And so certainly as a teacher, um, I didn't feel I was set up uh, for success to, to teach students. Um, and that that certainly has held true as we've done this work. It's clear that we need to, to help teachers and students um, learn the, the kinds of skills that, that will allow them to come to better sources and be able to evaluate uh, the claims that stream across their screens. Uh, it'll allow them to know whether or not um, the Tom Cruise on TikTok is actually Tom Cruise? Well, if nothing else, <laughs> it'll allow them to uh, figure out where that claim came from, right? Yeah, that's our hope, yeah. So so I joke, but the reason that I ask the question is because um, the website for the center is one of the only that I have seen have uh, main navigation that points to uh, a post by your colleague, um, Sam, I believe, who wrote a little bit about what the stakes are here. So beyond uh, deep fakes of Tom Cruise, what in your perspective are the stakes? I mean, unfortunately, recent events have revealed that the health of our democracy and our public health are imperiled by the proliferation of toxic content online. We need to make sure that folks are equipped with tools that allow them to sort fact from fiction. And if they don't, 
you know, we see the kinds of events that unfolded on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol and the spread of misinformation about the coronavirus that has led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people uh, because people are being badly misled. Um, and so there, there's no doubt that the, the stakes are really high and we need to uh, equip people with the tools to come to better information and make more informed decisions. And I think it's really important to emphasize that this isn't a partisan issue. This isn't trying to say, this is what you should believe. It's about setting people up to be able to find better information on their own and to have a set of research-based approaches to navigating the overwhelming amount of information online. We live in uh, an intention economy. And so we need to figure out where we should uh, spend our attention. Uh, and if a source isn't worthy of our attention, we should drop it and ignore it. We shouldn't read a source deeply until we know whether or not to trust it. And that's what we saw the professional fact checkers do, mm. was that they, they prioritized uh, this uh, this notion of attention, that they didn't want to spend time on reading a source until they knew where it came from. And so that's, that's if nothing else, a, a crucial approach to, to our current digital age. Yeah. And, and in addition to it being, an, um, you mentioned that it's, it's not a partisan issue. And I also, one of the things I spent a lot of time on this show doing is helping folks use a thoughtful kind of machete to slice through the jungle of um, criticism about the internet as the, the evil here. Um, and I also want to give you a second just to, to talk about that and share some perspective about, um, because I think that this research could come across, obviously research, um, if done well, is not a partisan um, game by any means. So this is objective, um, but you could certainly see some folks taking research like this and thinking, like, see, here's why the internet is evil, and we should just um, educate our young people without technology. Um, from your perspective, is the research making any argument that uh, learning with technology is bad? No, without a doubt. We think quite the opposite. We think that the internet is an incredibly powerful tool for finding better information. Um, there's never been a time when more information was readily available uh, in your pocket, right? The, to pull out a smartphone and be able to access so much information is unbelievable. Um, but what we need to do is make sure that folks are equipped to navigate that overwhelming amount of information. What we found is that there are a small number of strategies that can help us do better. This move of lateral reading of rather than just diving into a website to first ask the question of who's behind this information and, and not to spend half an hour or 45 minutes investigating that question, but just to quickly take a peek and say, you know, where where is minimumwage.com coming from? Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that, that totally shifts our approach. Or another move that we saw the fact checkers do was when they did a search, 
they didn't immediately click on the first result. Oftentimes, people believe that uh, the top search results are markers of uh, credibility, that those are the best sources of information. What we saw was those uh, fact checkers engaged with what we refer to as click restraint, that they paused and they took 15 or 30 seconds and just scrolled down the page and looked at the search results and tried to pick out what they thought might be the best initial place to begin their research. And as a result, they often had much more fruitful searches than uh, students who often clicked on one of those uh, top results. Yeah, can you, the, there were a few concepts in this work that really struck me. Click restraint um, was one of them. Um, another was attention conservation, which I think is such an important idea as well. I, can you describe one of the assessment scenarios just as a way of helping folks who maybe are hearing something like lateral reading and not quite um, having a mental model for what, what you mean by that? Sure. So as you mentioned, we recently published a study that we conducted with more than 3,000 high school students from all across the country. It was a sample that reflects in terms of the demographics of the high school population of our country, the those demographics. And we asked students to complete a series of tasks that presented them with real online sources. And they were doing this assessment with a live internet connection. So they could go on line at any time. One of the tasks asked students to evaluate uh, the website co2science.org, um, which purports to be a source of information uh, regarding climate change. Uh, and if you look at the website, it looks really incredible. It has a, a, a set of employees that have PhDs and they say that they're engaged in rigorous science. Um, but if you open a new tab in your web browser and do a quick search for CO2 science, you can very quickly find a series of pieces of information that tell you that they are funded by the fossil fuel uh, industry. Folks who have a vested interest in minimizing humans' role in uh, climate change. And if you read the website more carefully, you see that's exactly what they're doing, right? They are disputing humans' role in, uh, in global warming. That information is readily available, and you should know that information that they've received funding from folks with a vested interest before you read the website. Mm -hmm. Our research, though, showed that more than 96% of students never made that connection because they stayed on the website when if they had just done that Google search, within moments, they could have had information that would have reoriented them to how they thought about uh, about that website. And what we found in creating curriculum materials that teach these skills of lateral reading and click restraint is that we can shift students' orientation to information. I think it's important to emphasize that, that it's asking students to think about information in a different way. In school, we often ask students to read carefully and closely. Uh, close reading has been emphasized in the Common Core for now more than a decade. Mm. Uh, and it's also what is uh, what is uh, rewarded in tests like the SAT. We do close reading of, of text passages. 
that doesn't serve us well on the internet. We don't want students to read CO2 science carefully uh, before knowing what it is, right? What we want them to do is leave it. That That's paradoxical. And so it, it really is asking students to have a, a different orientation to information. But what we found is that we can teach students to do that. Um, we have a study forthcoming in the Journal of Educational Psychology where we did a district-wide initiative in a Midwestern urban school district. And after just six lessons, uh, we saw a statistically significant uh, improvement from pretest to post-test with students who completed our curriculum material. So we can help students do better. Uh, and I think that's really uh, the key part here is this doesn't have to be a gloom and doom story of uh, nobody can find good information online. Quite the contrary. There are uh, approaches that work. We just need to make sure that we're teaching students uh, those approaches and helping teachers to do it well, since teachers already are overwhelmed with uh, so many other demands on their time and attention. We need to, to equip them with the, the materials they need to effectively add this kind of instruction to their courses. Yeah. You you mentioned that you've been doing this work since 2014. The center, I think, started in 2015, if I'm, if I'm remembering my um, research right. Um, I wonder, in that time, if you were looking back and talking to yourself in 2014, um, are there things that really surprised you about the course of this research in the last uh, six or seven years? So things that in 2014 you would have thought, you know, we wouldn't even have thought of perhaps that have panned out that, that are really the, the kind of surprising findings, um, not just in one study, but across the work that you've been doing. I think there are a couple of things that stand out. One is just the scale of the problem, you know, that as we began to make these assessments, we were stunned by how much trouble uh, students had, uh, even older students. Uh, and so we kept on having to uh, re, re, uh, readjust our approach, recalibrate. We had we thought we had made tasks that were too easy and then students would still struggle on them. And so uh, I think that coming back to where we started with this question about the, the digital native and that young people are going to be equipped to do this, there's that that was part of our thinking, too. We thought, you know, students are familiar with the, the technology, and they are, um, but they weren't uh, necessarily familiar with strategies to help them find good information on that technology. Uh, and so that that certainly has been uh, a, a surprise across the board. And then the second thing is how durable some of these myths about how you should find good information have been. You know, things like never trust Wikipedia. Um, that is uh, incredibly uh, long lasting, right? Uh, people have this uh, innate sense that, that Wikipedia is never a good source of information. Certainly it is imperfect, but if used wisely, uh, especially on topics that are um, of high interest and are well-sourced, Wikipedia could be a great starting place for research if you mine uh, the citations at the end of it. But yet we see over and over again students saying, I've been told never to use Wikipedia um, or the idea that you can tell whether or not a website is trustworthy based on its uh, top level domain. So things like .org equals trustworthy. Um, if you go and look at hate groups in the United States, 
Many of them use .org websites in large part because they know that folks think that is a marker of credibility. We've seen over and over again when students are shown two different websites, they'll say things like, this is a better website because it has .org, or I don't trust this website because it's .com. But if you think about it, most major journalistic outlets in the United States have .com websites. Um, mm. That doesn't mean you should dismiss them. And similarly, there are lots of problematic uh, sources with .orgs. Um, so uh, the durability of these myths um, has also been very surprising. Yeah. We need, I feel like, uh, sidebar, somebody needs to just create a simulator that enables every 12-year-old to buy in a in a simulation, but to buy a domain and see how easy it is to uh, choose an extension that is uh, whether right, it's can... <laughs> .com or .biz, it's basically a radio button that you select before you pay 18 bucks. Right. Everybody can own their own .org, right? There is no uh, there is no test of, of trustworthiness to, to get that domain, yeah, yeah. without a doubt. Um, I wonder, so... You, we talked a little bit about you as a social studies history teacher, and um, I think a lot about my friends who are history teachers, and I wonder about your perspective on having having been one, um, how you think that role is changing, and are we, is this literacy that we're talking about today something that should fall squarely on social studies and history teachers? Is it, um, is it fair to do so if either way, do we have the right pre-professional training to get, um, get our educators um, into a practice that combats some of this um, illiteracy? I think it's a really important issue to take up. I don't think that this should solely fall on the shoulders of social studies teachers um, for a variety of reasons. One, they already have a, a lot to do um, and to expect them to take on this crucial work on top of everything else uh, all by themselves um, is unrealistic uh, and as you say, unfair. Um, it is too important um, uh, not to be taken up more broadly. However, and perhaps more importantly, I don't think it will be effective if it just happens in one course. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is to figure out ways to integrate this across the curriculum, because it's not going to be effective if it's just this one-off that happens in one unit in their social studies course. What we need to do is to make sure that when the biology teacher is asking students to go online to do a research project, that they are also uh, reminding their students to engage in some lateral reading and to look at uh, the ways in which uh, there's problematic content about a whole host of scientific topics. And so that's actually uh, our primary focus now is to figure out ways to integrate these resources across the curriculum. We've been working with schools in Illinois lately to help teachers think about what does this look like in, in a science classroom? Um, we did a, a study um, two summers ago in, uh, in a college nutrition course. Uh, all of these things are focused around embedding the ideas into these other courses so that it's not um, it's not adding to an overstuffed curriculum, but instead finding points of contact where this is relevant. And so it's it's not adding on, but just uh, adjusting the, the existing curriculum to address the needs of our present moment. Yeah. Can you, this is a 
great spot to tell us a little bit about the resources for educators and the curriculum and some of the video work, which I find to be um, a, a, among the best I've seen in this space that, and um, I will have played a clip, I think, at the top of the show to demonstrate for folks how much resource there is here beyond just the the published research. Um, but tell us a little bit about the resources that the center has been able to bring, obviously, not just you all, but collaborators across um, multiple stakeholders on the internet uh, to create for educators. Yeah, so we have created a free database of lessons and assessments that are all available at cor.stanford.edu. Uh, we refer to our curriculum as civic online reasoning and emphasize the civic component that we really believe that in order to be a participating member of our democracy, that we need these skills to, to find trustworthy information about issues that affect us all. Uh, and the curriculum materials are based off of the research that we have done both with fact checkers and uh, the various studies I've, I've mentioned during the course of our conversation. And they uh, provide students with opportunities to practice these skills uh, the fact of the professional fact checkers using real online sources. And so uh, folks can go online and, and download uh, those lessons as, as Google Docs and the assessments are Google Forms. Um, they're all totally free. You just need to create a login that only requires a, a functioning email address. Um, and we've also, as you mentioned, collaborated with a, a series of partners to create a, a whole bunch of online videos as well. We were fortunate to work with John Green and his team at Crash Course to create an entire series about navigating digital information that uses all of the same skills of the civic online reasoning curriculum, but are um, much more funny and engaging than we ever could have been because of uh, John Green's particular brilliance in that regard. And so all those uh, videos are also available on our website. We've also created a series of short animated videos to help teachers think about how they would go about teaching these skills. So there's a three minute video about teaching lateral reading. Uh, and then we also collaborated with teachers uh, to show what it would look like to implement these lessons in a classroom. So there's a, a video of a teacher uh, in California implementing one of the civic online reasoning lessons and another video with voices of teachers and students talking about their experiences using these and why it has been particularly powerful for them to feel uh, really much more well equipped to find good information when they uh, are scrolling uh, through their social media feeds. Yeah. Do you have a one of those lessons that has yielded really fun projects and results that you've seen over time that would help us characterize when, when you talk about lessons, one of the nice things we can do is just sort of um, give folks a taste of what we mean. Lessons can be all kinds of things on the spectrum of dry to amazing. Um, what's one of your favorites that's yielded yeah. great results? Yeah, so actually the, the lesson that is featured in that video um, of the teacher using one uh, asks students to compare what you find out about a given site uh, based on vertical reading of just staying on the website 
versus leaving a given source. Uh, and so it asks students to look at uh, a website called Against Malaria. Uh, and it is uh, got kind of crummy uh, site design. It really had features a lot of uh, requests for donations. It's a .com website. So if we just use a bunch of our outdated approaches to evaluating the source, you might have some questions about how useful it is. But if you leave the site, and that's what we ask students to do after sort of saying like, well, if we just looked at it, what might we think? And, you know, come up with all these questions if we were using these kind of problematic uh, approaches to evaluation. And then say, now you go read laterally about it. And within a couple minutes, students quickly discover uh, that it's actually a very well-known and widely respected uh, non-governmental organization that has provided millions of uh, mosquito nets to prevent the spread of malaria. Um, and then students uh, repeat the practice using a tweet um, from a gentleman named Joseph Mercola, who has become much more widely known during the course of the COVID uh, pandemic because he has spread um, a deeply, deeply toxic content about um, the nature of, of the virus. But um, he also has uh, previously was also doing uh, problematic posts against uh, about malaria. And so we asked students to look at a Twitter post from him. And so on his face, uh, it looks pretty good. He says he's a doctor and he has a, a website that is rated number one for natural health. But if you leave the website, uh, leave Twitter and his profile and what he's saying about himself through lateral reading, you get a much different picture mm. of him. Um, and so we, we call that uh, lesson vertical reading. Um, and so it's a vertical versus lateral reading. So it's really just highlighting for students how much more you can learn by leaving a website and to, to point out why it's problematic just to stay on a source and to take it at face value. Yeah. Well, I loved um, getting to have a look at some of the stuff, and and uh, I think it's brilliant material. And I think our, my hope is that we attract some professors and social studies and history educators who can find the time this COVID year um, to to build off of some of this content because the curriculum and even just supplementary the video material is so so good. Um, and it's something that instant, I have a 12 year old and instantly as I was watching this, um, I thought, man, I'm going to have him spend time on, um, especially the, the John Green content where I feel like the modality there that was chosen in the design of that information was just so smart because, um, he would be all over that, um, so I actually want to ask you a question about modality, which may go nowhere, and we might cut this out of the interview, but is one that that makes me curious um, as we're talking. So if you look at what we're talking about here in some respect is about information design, right? So the internet is designed in a particular way to serve up information, and it doesn't work in that sort of... Um, the way that you can, uh, um, what's, what's the term, um, you know, read laterally, um, unless you know to do that, but there are, there are texts over time that do that. And one of them that comes to mind is I always found it fascinating how, um, the Hebrew texts like the Torah are designed in such a way that it's really designed to read laterally in the sense that you read a passage in the center, but you also have 
annotation around the margins. Um, and not to say you are, I'm not speaking with a, uh, a, a scholar of a Talmudic scholar by any means, but um, I wonder, are folks out there thinking about um, those connections between information design and how we can do a better job of creating UX that, um, that prompts the lateral reading and some of the habits and, um, well, deliberate habits that will um, create a better citizenry in that respect? Yeah, I think it's a, a crucial question. We're facing a whole of society problem and we need a whole of society response. And so this is not uh, going to be solved just by teaching some skills in the context of educational settings. We also need to think about what are the mechanisms by which people are coming across that information. And and tech platforms have a role in, in that as well. Um, and so as one example, Google has added a feature to their search results where there are three little dots next to search results. And if you click on those, it provides you some information uh, about that source. That is directly influenced by uh, the work that, that we've done around lateral reading. It's to try to, to make it easy for people to find out information about sources. And I think that's a perfect example of the kinds of shifts that we could see in terms of the process or rather the actual architecture of uh, the systems that are providing this information. You know, you've seen similar things um, in social media platforms as well in terms of how they have tried to uh, slow the proliferation of toxic content, right? So of, of putting flags on particular sources, right? So now if you go on, on YouTube, you'll see uh, sometimes they'll have uh, particular uh, accounts that are flagged as state media accounts so that, you know, RT um, is no longer just appearing as a run-of-the-mill news organization, but that you discover that it actually is uh, run by the Russian government, um, mm. for instance, right? Or, you know, Twitter uh, asking, do you want to uh, read that link before you retweet it, right? So of trying to think about the the design of these platforms that can, uh, can help people both to find better information and also uh, to slow down um, the spread of, of toxic content. I'm glad I asked. Um, if you had to prioritize for parents where to spend time with adolescents or teen students, based on this study, outside of lateral reading, which we've talked a bunch about, and I will link to more of in the notes for the show, but outside of that, what would you suggest? I think it is really that disposition towards information, right, is that you should have your child wondering about where information comes from and to think about what are the qualities of a source that would make it one that you would trust uh, and to think about the kinds of sources that are, are better for finding information. So thinking about individuals or organizations that have authority to speak about a given topic. Uh, and so really getting that, that basic idea that I, I wanna know where the information is coming from is crucial for helping students to then take subsequent steps to evaluate the, the different kinds of information that comes across their screens. But at a, at a basic level, it's really um, taking that moment to wonder, where's this coming from? Uh, and if we can get students to do that, uh, and all of us to do that, we're going to be in much better shape. Last night, we were watching a show with my 12-year-old, and um, there was a family who had adopted um, uh, a young child, and he said, 
um, there was a character who was sort of playing the antagonist and saying how um, and had had some issue with this adoption and and my son said um, how could you have a problem with that um, you know if if you are adopting you're pretty much saving the world and then he said um, something like twenty percent of young people are homeless or in shelters and um, he then followed that by saying I just made that number up. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I raise that story because lots of folks who listen to this show have a moment like that with their kids or their students or grandkids or nephews and nieces, um, where we all have an opportunity to ask more questions and help them ask more questions. Um, there was a really good instinct there for him. Uh, I'm, I'm biased. Um, I think he's great, but, uh, there was a great instinct there to see, um, see a story and a narrative that related to a social issue. And he was making connections between data and that issue. He made up the data. So it's a great opportunity for us to talk about sources. And it just so happens it was last night before you and I were about to talk, um, but I think we all have this opportunity, and I'm just so glad, as I said earlier, that um, you and your team at the center at Stanford are doing this work and that um, folks like John Green and others are investing to collaborate. Uh, Wikimedia Foundation, I know, has done a lot of work. Are there others we should celebrate um, and link to in the show notes for folks to follow and be aware of so that they can become sort of active in this space? Sure, another uh, person who we've worked with is Mike Caulfield, who's now at the University of Washington. He has a, a similar approach as we do. His uh, approach is called the SIFT method, um, and uh, it is also about leaving an unfamiliar source and, and tracking down better information. We've been fortunate uh, to partner with the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, and we actually put together a free online course with them uh, that is focused about teaching the civic online reasoning uh, curriculum. That that MOOC is not currently running, but all of the materials that are part of it are available through MIT's open archives. So those are um, some really great resources uh, to seek out as well. Um, so those, yeah, a, a couple more. And, and especially if you're you're interested in, in higher education, uh, Mike and his colleagues have, have done a, a series of studies now um, uh, focused around these issues. Um, and one more would be CIVICS, uh, C-I-V-I-X, that is based in Canada. Um, and they have uh, a really nice new website called Control F um, that has a, a variety of free curriculum materials that uh, Mike worked with them to develop, and and they have found similar results in terms of the struggles that Canadian students have in evaluating online sources, and also that we can help students do better. That they have done research as well, showing that if we teach students these strategies, they do become better at, at finding credible information online. And so uh, I think it's really, really important that we recognize that there is now a uh, a pretty sizable. Uh, research base showing that we can help people become better at finding information. We just need to teach them the right skills. Joel, thanks for being here. This was great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, 
Find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 